I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Up next, The Truth with Lisa Booth, part of the Gingrich 360 Network. Welcome back to The Truth with Lisa Booth. So what does the future of the Republican Party look like after Joe Biden's presidency? What does the future of the country look like? I'm going to get those answers for you from the former Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. He's also the author of the book Beyond Biden, where he charts the path forward for us. He's a historian. He's also a, a former professor as well. You know, we look around right now and the future seems pretty perilous. It seems bleak. There's a lot to be concerned with. But Speaker Gingrich says to not lose hope. You know, this is a man who wrote the contract with America where he outlined to voters what a Republican majority would do in 1994. It was a bold move and voters rewarded him with a Republican majority in both the House and the Senate. I'm really looking forward to getting his wisdom and his perspective on where we are now and what the future holds. It's going to be a great show with a great guy. Stay tuned. So I am really excited about having this next guest on the show because, you know, right now everything seems pretty perilous. It seems pretty daunting. So I am looking forward to having this conversation with Speaker Newt Gingrich, who is a student of history, a lover of history, former Speaker of the House, someone to offer us some wisdom and reflection about where we are now, comparatively speaking, to before. He's also the author of the book, Beyond Biden. Speaker, it is an honor to have you on the show. Well, listen, it's great to be with you, and you've been doing such an amazing job hosting your program, And but you've done that with everything you've done in life, so uh, I thought this would be a very challenging and exciting experience because I know both how smart you are and how much energy you have and I look forward to it and I think in a sense beyond Biden is really directed at your generation and younger people even than you like my grandchildren uh, to say hey you know we can rebuild this country you know never never as Churchill once said never give up so I'm delighted to have a chance to talk about where we're going to be once Biden disappears into history. And so where will we be? I mean, looking beyond Biden, you know, what does that look like? Well, I think in a funny kind of way, uh, by being so militant and so aggressive, the uh, big government socialists have actually created an environment where the average American has been forced to think about what do they really believe. And the result has been they were shocked to discover they're really much more conservative than they thought they were. And that particularly conservative in the sense that they don't want a gigantic federal government. They don't want inflation. 
They don't want big bureaucracies dictating their lives. They don't want politicians being hypocrites and setting up one set of rules for the average person and a different set of rules for the powerful. Uh, and so, in a way, the conversation we're having as a country is really clarifying who we are uh, and what I think will turn out to be very positive. At the same time, when you look, for example, at the uh, states that have Republican governors uh, who are applying common sense, things are working. The, the schools are better. The uh, roads are better. The jobs are better. If you look at the, I think, of the top 10 states in employment, uh, all 10 have Republican governors and nine have Republican state legislatures. And they're just, they're applying a different set of rules than, say, California or Illinois or New York, all of which are uh, dominated by the unions and by politicians and by uh, people who believe in big government bureaucracy, and all of which are, in that sense, falling behind. Do you think American or enough Americans are awake to that, to what you just laid out? Well, the polling data is pretty devastating. I mean, when, if you ask people, do you think this is working? You get an overwhelming no. If you ask people, uh, do you favor uh, big government socialism? Uh, the, the biggest number we've gotten is 18%. Uh, and Rasmussen pretty well tracks the same thing. So <clears throat> when people think about it, uh, given what's happening, particularly in Washington, but also in Sacramento and Albany and Springfield, uh, people are saying, no, that, that's not what they want. And I think that's going to have in 2022 and 2024 uh, almost a tsunami. In fact, in one of my newsletters, which I, I do three a week at Gingrich 360 that are free, and one of them was on uh, the, the coming tsunami because I think it's going to be bigger than a tide. I think that uh, the, the rejection is going to be breathtaking and the number of people, uh, left-wing Democrats, who lose their seats is going to be far more than anybody in Washington thinks today. But do you think Democrats will allow for that? Because what we have seen with the left uh, is a changing of the rules. Uh, you know, if, if they if, if things aren't going their way, they, they change the rules. We saw this before the 2020 election using the pandemic, using covid to lean on mail-in ballots. We've seen this with them trying to push forward with nationalizing, federalizing or elections. I mean, what do you think we can expect from them on that front? Well, I think to the degree they can cheat, they will. Uh, I mean, it's no accident that the New York City Council uh, has uh, is talking about letting 800,000 people who are here illegally vote uh, in New York City elections. Uh, <clears throat> I think there's a real sense on the left that if the election is, is limited to legal American citizens, that they're in real trouble. So they both try to vote people who are not alive or people who don't exist or people who vote multiple times. And they try to find ways to uh, widen uh, to people who are not legally American. You know, you had things like in, I think it was Wisconsin, the uh, service employees union uh, had a nursing home where they provided all the workers and the workers were going around to people who had Alzheimer's and other challenges and getting them to vote, even though it was clear they had no idea who they were voting for. And so those particular unionized workers uh, were able, in effect, to vote 10 or 20 or 30 times by getting people who were uh, technically available. But it's very different. If, you're, if your relative comes in to see you and your relative knows what you believe, uh, there's at least some grounds for, allow, for having you vote. But if uh, somebody comes in who knows that they want to elect a big government, uh, the Democrat, uh, and that they're going to exploit you because you now cognitively don't know uh, what you're doing, there's something profoundly wrong with that. And that's what was happening uh, in that particular nursing home in Wisconsin. And, of course, in places like California, they were just making up the ballots. I mean, there's no question that they were stuffing them. One of the great breakthroughs in the Virginia governor's race was they somehow, and I don't know how they did this, but they somehow got the Democratic governor and the Democratic secretary of state to agree that they would count all of the mail-in ballots and all of the absentee ballots before they counted the people who voted on election day. And the reason that mattered was it meant if you were suddenly losing, that, that you were not in a position to... Uh, uh, go back out and manufacture additional ballots because you've already voted them all. Uh, had that happened, for example, 
in Minnesota a few years back, we would have reelected the Republican senator uh, who was ahead on election night until magically early in the morning, somebody found two precincts in the trunk of a car. And those two precincts happen to be overwhelmingly Democrat, and they happen to show up at just the right moment. And so the Democrat won by a really narrow margin. Well, what they did in Virginia blocked all that sort of game playing. And I think you'll see more and more states insisting on honest elections. And when, when we do polls, 85 or 87 percent of the American people want you to show your identity, want you to prove you are who you are, wants it restricted only to legal American citizens. So I think even there, uh, <clears throat> it's, get, it's getting harder and harder for the left to cheat. Well, I definitely think the 2020 election woke a lot of Americans up in that regard of just saying, hey, look, is this fair? What are we doing? You know, what can we do to sort of safeguard our elections? You know, sir, it's one of those things you you look at today's dynamics with politics. Right. And, And there used to be conservatives who would say, oh, the left's evil. And I used to be like, no, you know, we have political differences. But but now it's like. You look at what they did to Kavanaugh. You look at what they tried doing to Kyle Rittenhouse. It's there seems to be a different dynamic at play where it's not just simple political disagreements. The left wants to destroy the lives of their political opponents. Is that new? I think the depth of the bitterness is new. I think you know we we have. Uh, it's kind of ironic. The very people who worried about. Um, communists being smeared in the 1950s now enthusiastically run around smearing people. But there's always been a certain amount of that kind of toughness uh, in American politics. But it's it's gone to a a new level of not just attacking you, but attacking your family, uh, almost trying to make it too painful for decent people to be involved in public life. Uh, basically saying, you know, you do this and your whole your whole family is going to pay a huge penalty psychologically. Uh, and I think that it's tragic that they have that kind of attitude. So I, I would say that um, we are in a time when the bitterness of the left, uh, the degree to which they dislike America, the degree to which they think that the average American is uh, beneath contempt. It's it's the the whole Hillary Clinton attitude. It's the incorrigibles. It's a as somebody one Democrat said, it's those people who smell like they went to Walmart. Um, you know, which happens by the way to have almost every American go to it at least once a year. Uh, but it's just this whole contempt for normal people. And part of what it's done is it's driven everyday working. Democrats out of the Democratic Party. I mean, the the steady stream, whether you're Hispanic or black or white or Asian-American, the steady stream away from uh, big government socialism and away from left-wing Democrats is amazing. It's why recently uh, we won a special election in San Antonio for a state legislative seat. It was a district that was 73 percent Hispanic. But in fact, we were carrying Hispanics. And it's, it's one of the great ironies. The left has always counted on what they would have thought of as, as people of color. Well, it turns out that people of color aren't stupid uh, and that people of color are increasingly voting against high taxes, big bureaucracy and radical social programs. Well, and that was actually one of the things I I wanted to ask you about, because to your point, we've seen this realignment happen, particularly under Trump, of this diverse Republican Party that represents the working class. Democrats have become the party of the coastal elites. Was that just President Trump or or how did that realignment happen? You know, what's behind that? Well, it it had been building for a long time. I, I found in preparing to think about the next few years that it was very helpful to go back and reread Theodore White's Making of the President in 1968 and Making of the President in 1972. And in 68, White talks at length both about the revolutionary mood. Remember, uh, you wouldn't because you're too young, but uh, so I'll tell you. Uh, in, in 1969, we had 2,500 bombings, or 1970, 2,500 in the United States. Uh, we had a a scientist at the University of Wisconsin killed by a bomb. We had a historian at Columbia University have his life's work destroyed by a mob. Uh, I mean, we were very close to the left going crazy. And in fact, the current uh, uh, prosecutor, who's actually a non-prosecutor, uh, in uh, San Francisco is a communist. 
Uh, his father is still in prison with a life sentence for having killed a Brinks guard a truck uh, uh, and uh, the guy who guarded the truck. And his wife spent years in prison uh, lead, leading his son to be anti-prison as opposed to anti-killing Brink guardsmen. Uh, and th- but, th- but that was a robbery to fund the revolution. It was sort of an imitation of Joseph Stalin's uh, early years uh, in uh, robbing banks to fund the uh, Communist Party in Russia. Uh, and, and we've forgotten how much that was. In, in 1972, uh, and, or in rather in the 68 book, White has a chapter on the media which is really worth reading. And it really sounds like today. I mean, the, the, the biases, the... the the anti-Republican, anti-conservative, anti-American traits of the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're all right there in 1968. In the 1972 book, he explains that uh, George McGovern is has a huge problem with the left. And, and the line he used, which I thought was really helpful, is that the liberal ideology had become a liberal theology. And you, you could no longer debate it, argue about it, modify it, because to do so was an act of heresy. Uh, it had become a, basically a quasi-religious movement. Now, this is 1972. So what you've seen is the steady growth and evolution on college campuses, in the news media, and the bureaucracy of people who have been absorbed into this uh, new theology. Uh, and if you think about it, if you, if you think of this as a war of religion— between a secular left-wing anti, you know, anti-Christian, anti-Jew, uh, anti-American, uh, anti-national uh, religion, uh, and the rest of us, then they have the same fanaticism that you would have gotten uh, from the French Revolution or from the Russian Revolution or the Chinese Revolution. There are remarkable parallels between their attitude and the way Mao operated in the Cultural Revolution. And I, on my podcast at Newt's World, I've interviewed uh, Chinese-Americans, one of whom was a woman who literally was in the Cultural Revolution under Mao as a very young girl, and now is fighting about the schools in Loudoun County, Virginia, which she says have taken on Maoist behavior. Uh, she said, I feel like I'm back in China again. And uh, I think that that's real. I think that the, the left here has the same revolutionary tendencies that you would have seen uh, in, in Paris in 1792 or in Moscow in 1917 or in China up to today, because Xi Jinping in many ways is the new Mao. Well, and I also interviewed, to your point, I interviewed Maximo Alvarez to escape Cuba, who had the, the same sentiments that you just laid out of a concern that we're turning into Cuba. You just mentioned, you know, turning into China. Why do so many people on the left hate America? The one, one, I used to be a college teacher. And one of the characteristics of college teachers is that they read lots of books. They walk into classrooms where all of these eager young students stare at them uh, slavishly because actually they can flunk them. I mean, there, there are few, few places of, of untested power comparable to being a professor in a college classroom. And so, of course, the students who are relatively clever all suck up to them and go, oh, this is such a brilliant lecture. I can't tell you how much it meant to me to be able to sit here and learn from a genius like you. Well, they believe all this stuff. And, you know, they, some of them actually work as much as 15 hours a week. I mean, it's an amazing project. Uh, and, uh, in fact, a good friend of mine used to explain to his working class relatives that he'd gotten a Ph.D. because he only worked 15 hours a week. And they said, ah, yeah, you're ripping off the man. We got it. You're really clever uh, because that sort of fit their industrial mentality. Uh, but the fact is that then look around and they realize, you know, people like uh, Bill Gates uh, has more money than they do. Well, he doesn't deserve to have more money than they do. And the uh, guy who is the local lawyer who drives a, a better car than they do. Well, why does he that? I mean, you know, what does he do? He just, he just does law, whereas I am a brilliant genius who does knowledge. And I think that the level of envy is very real and very deep. The other factor that we have, just have to own up to is our immigration policy allows people to come here who hate us. Uh, they hated us back when they were home. I mean, I'm always amazed, for example, when somebody who has migrated from, say, Somalia uh, tells us how bad America is. I mean, first of all, I'm all very happy. We ought to have a policy of saying we will always pay for a return ticket if you'd like to go home. Um, 
But in addition, you look at a woman, a Somali woman in America and a Somali woman in Mogadishu, uh, you have to be literally crazy to think that you're better off in Mogadishu. But they come here, they get to be elected to Congress, and suddenly they dislike the country which has liberated them and protected them and given them status. Uh, and you have to think, uh, as Glad said, who wrote a great book on this about claiming that left-wingism is actually a virus and you can't deal with them rationally because these are people whose brains are now occupied by this virus. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot. He, he says, you know, when you deal with somebody who refuses to ex to admit that you have a higher income in the U.S. than in Somalia, you're not having an argument. You're dealing with a person who has a mental illness. Uh, and I think that that is sort of spread on the left. And because it's a, some, it's a secular religious movement, if you don't believe that, you will be coerced and punished. And, and it's, it's this, this attitude which has allowed Nancy Pelosi to run a dictatorship with an amazingly narrow margin. I, I wouldn't, as a former Speaker of the House, I would not have thought it possible to do the things that she does. Uh, I just think that it's she. She gets. In fact, I, I've suggested that they should uh, that the lemming should replace the donkey as the symbol of the Democratic Party because she gets people to walk off the cliff suicidally on a regular basis. She has a very narrow margin, and probably thirty or forty of her members are literally committing suicide every time they vote with her, and they do it anyway. I think because. Being kneecapped by Pelosi this week is a more certain punishment than being fired in November of 2022. Quick commercial break. More with Speaker Gingrich on the other side. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. One thing that really concerns me about where we are now is we've seen this government reaction to COVID and leaders, not just in the United States, but around the world, using it to reshape society, reshape the role of the federal government in our lives or just the government in general. And like the beauty of America is we've been a constitutional republic, self-governance, putting power in the hands of the people. And it, it seems like that power 
has been taken away. You know, how do we regain that? What does that mean for the country moving forward? I mean, it, it, it's hard to imagine how we take that power back when it's been taken so egregiously. Well, I think in a lot of states, though, you're seeing that happen. Again, uh, Republican governors uh, as a group, not all of them, but uh, virtually all of them, are much more inclined to allow people to live their own lives and run their own risk. If you if you compare Florida and Texas with New York and California, there is just an astonishing difference in attitude in, in the governing people. Um, I do think that across the planet, uh, the bureaucrats and the politicians saw this as a great opportunity uh, to be brilliant, and, and they would have said they were doing what science told them to. The, the truth is, and I'm in the middle of reading a whole series of books right now on, on the COVID uh, epidemic and what it, how it happened, what was done, et cetera. The truth is, first of all, we have a terrible, in, incompetent, obsolete public health system. Uh, I'm embarrassed by how bad the Center for Disease Control has become. It's a, a, it's a politically dominated, timid, and ineffective bureaucracy which uh, actually made the COVID epidemic substantially worse in the United States by the bureaucracy and their attitudes. Uh, I think that it's clear that politicians like Cuomo killed thousands of people unnecessarily by doing exactly the opposite of what they should have done, putting uh, people with COVID in the nursing homes instead of keeping them out of the nursing homes. Uh, And I think in New York, for example, we're going to find that literally thousands a minimum of 7,000, maybe as many as 15,000 senior citizens were killed by uh, Andrew Cuomo's policies, uh, just plain killed. Uh, and uh, so in that sense, I think it's, it's bad. I also think that all, on a worldwide basis, and this is partly the doing of Bill Gates, who has been funding uh, programs all over the planet that are on the surface philanthropic and positive and designed to wipe out uh, 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 tuberculosis or wipe out malaria or whatever. They all sound great, but what he's done in the process is created a worldwide groupthink. And so across the planet, people decided that they would lock down. Now, it's interesting. If you go to Japan, Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, they followed very strict programs that are classic in how you deal with epidemics. They had huge amounts of testing. Uh, and they tracked people uh, and and found out exactly who had the disease, isolated only the people with the disease, kept their economies up and running. Uh, and as a result, uh, I think in Taiwan, they've, they've had something like, don't, don't take this number literally because I'm, I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but it's, I think they've had something like 80 people die and maybe 900 who got COVID because they just they trapped the virus as fast as they could find it, didn't let those particular people spread it, and so the virus died out. Uh, Singapore was similar. Uh, South Korea has done a great job. Japan did a pretty good job, not quite as good. But all four of those countries are radically better than the Western countries at, at uh, solving this. And, and by the way, it's not purely East and West. The Chinese have done a terrible job and uh, simply lie about how many Chinese have died and how many have gotten COVID uh, because it's been much, much worse than they're willing to admit. Although the challenge is that, uh, you know, COVID's probably not going away. So you could argue that maybe Sweden had the best route where they sort of just, you know, allowed COVID to do as a virus does as it's going to continue to do and as opposed to, you know, we sort of prolonged what is inevitably going to happen in terms of, you know, we're all probably going to get COVID at some point. So it's, you know, better to to build up your immune system. But, you know, regardless, uh, you know, so it's not just the, the size of the government in terms of how large governments have grown um, throughout COVID. It's also corporations and the crushing of small businesses and the crushing of businesses that are more decentralized. It's the centralization of corporations. It's big tech and the growth of big tech and the power that has over our lives. So how how do Republicans, what should they do with that? What should they do with these corporations who have gotten so big, so powerful with big tech that has gotten so big and so powerful? Well, look, I I think, excuse me, I think we should be deeply in favor of genuine free enterprise and genuine entrepreneurship, starting with small businesses. And we should be against 
crony capitalism in which when, when you see a corporation which values its lobbyists more than its engineers, uh, you know you're dealing with crony capitalism. And uh, they tend to underperform, overprice, and they tend to cheat in order to crowd out uh, younger, smaller, newer competitors. Uh, and so I think we should be in favor of the competition. And when, and you would have a dramatic turnover. If you go back and look at who were the biggest companies in the stock market in 1900, it's astonishing how few of them are still around. Because in a really competitive, dynamic society, there are constantly new people, you know, the, the Elon Musks of the world, uh, who are uh, inventing new things and creating new things. And, and you want them to grow. I mean, we, we want not just small businesses. We want lots of baby businesses that are capable of growing into giants. And then we want the t continuous, what, what Schumpeter called creative destruction. We want a continuous pressure of the next wave of new ideas and the next wave of new businesses. So I, I don't object to a Bill Gates or a Steve Jobs. I object to them then trying to pull up the drawbridge and block anybody else from competing with them. Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations warned that any time uh, businessmen get together for lunch is a conspiracy against the consumer. And there's something to that. I mean, uh, I, I, in, in government contracting may be among the worst in government rules and regulations. If you watch, you'll notice that the really big companies love regulations because they have a big enough law department and a big enough clerical force that they can deal with the regulations. And they know that it will have much greater cost per dollar on the small companies that are trying to compete with them. So you have to always be careful and ask, is this regulation necessary for the public, or is it a gimmick by which the current dominant companies uh, crowd out and weaken their potential competitors? But I think we should not be uh, the, you know, the movement or the party of uh, big corporations in bed with government. We should be the movement and the party in favor of entrepreneurs and startups and small businesses and baby businesses. And we should be constantly looking at the tax code and the regulatory code to make sure that it's not propping up the big guys inefficiently, but rather is maximizing the opportunity to compete and to grow. But are some of these companies too big to compete with? Because we've almost had an artificial resetting of the economy with the government coming in and essentially you know, dictating the terms by destroying so many businesses in America. So are, are some of these companies too big to just simply compete with? They're not too big to compete with as long as you insist that competition is possible. They're too big to compete with if they can go out in a predatory way and destroy you. Uh, and so I think you've got to look. You've got to look for what their behaviors are. But as a general rule, if you go back and look at the biggest companies of 1900, uh, with the possible exception of uh, of Exxon, which was Standard Oil, uh, almost none of them have, in fact, in the long run, retained that ability because uh, other competitors come along, new technologies come along, things that once worked no longer work. Uh, entrepreneurs grow older and. The, the genius they had when they were 30, they don't have when they're 70. I mean, some do. There are, there are occasions where you have, like Thomas Edison, who was inventing his whole life and probably invented at one point, I think 6% of the economy was, was Thomas Edison's personal inventions, um, like the electric light and the motion picture. Uh, but I think as a general principle, uh, even those folks then are, are gradually replaced because people come along, you know, vaudeville faced movies. And about the time movies were dominant, they faced radio and then they faced television. Uh, and uh, now, of course, you have video and you have, ca you have cable and you have streaming and you have this explosion of opportunities. Whereas, you know, 70 or 80 years ago, you had at one point you had one, one uh, nationwide uh, channel, uh, which was NBC. Uh, and... The world just changed. So I, I'm, I really believe that entrepreneurs and technology uh, are constant drivers unless they're cut off. Now, they can be cut off because the bigs come in and buy them, or they can be cut off because government sets up uh, tax policy or sets up regulatory policy or sets up contracts. I mean, if, 
if government's only willing to contract with Boeing and Lockheed Martin and, and, and companies of that size, then the, the small startups who often have better solutions at lower cost can't even get into the game. Well, and, and earlier on the show, I said student of history, but I meant just lover of history. You're, you're an actual historian and a former professor. But in addition to that, everyone knows you as being the former you know, Speaker of the House. And you you were the driver behind the, the mastermind, the brainchild of the contract with America in 1994, when you're minority whip at the time, this was introduced, I believe, six weeks before Bill uh, Bill Clinton's first midterm elections. And it was really bold because you you outlined to America what Republicans would do if they obtained power. And ultimately, Republicans went on to gain 54 seats in the House, nine seats in the Senate. You know, looking back, why did you find that necessary at the time? What was behind that? Well, ironically... The one person who's written about this accurately is Chuck Schumer. That's funny. <laughs> Schumer wrote, it is. No, I, I actually did a press club event with Schumer. He wrote a book about 2007 on, on how democracy operates. And in his book, he had a chapter on the contract with America. And he's the one person who understood what we were doing. The contract with America was actually a management tool to change the culture of the House Republican Party. Uh, and it was it was it was designed to win the election, and and uh, was something I had done with Reagan in 1980 when we had a Capitol Steps event, and not only did Reagan win by the largest electoral vote margin against an incumbent president in modern history, but he also carried into office a majority in the Senate, which nobody thought possible, and we won five senatorial seats by a total of 75,000 votes, uh, and I think it was because they'd all come together and had this event and pledged five positive things because I think positive matters. Uh, and, and I think it's not enough just to be negative. So we both wanted to have an election vehicle, which is what the contract was at one level. So people would say, oh, if I vote for you, you'll actually do positive things. And I'm personally convinced that if we'd run a traditional Republican negative campaign, we'd have gained 25 or 30 seats, but we would not have gained a majority. Uh, well, the way it worked, uh, we actually ended up gaining 54 seats, uh, and that was in part because um, we competed everywhere, and it was in part because we had this positive vision, which you could feel in the candidates. I mean, a candidate who has a positive future just feels different than a candidate who's angry and negative and only uh, t- can't do anything but attack. But the second reason we did it was when we won the majority – we did not want to become a normal party. Uh, we didn't want people to show up and say, oh, gosh, what am I going to do now? Get captured by the lobbyist and the Georgetown social set, uh, go from cocktail party to cocktail party and become useless. So we agreed that in the first 100 days we would vote on 10 big items. And the effort it took to get everybody lined up to actually keep our word made us, I think, for about three years – almost four years, a dramatically different party than we had been before or that we've been since then. So in part, I would argue that you, you want to have some kind of positive commitment that forces your members to actually do what they promise to do, or they'll cynically win an election. Uh, and in the tradition of Robert Redford and the candidate, at the very end when he wins, he says, you know, what, what do we do now? Because uh, he had, you know, he was just a candidate. He hadn't thought about actually trying to govern. And I think you've got to have a movement that wants to fix America's problems, not just a movement that wants to hold power. You know, but it, I mean, that takes a lot of foresight and that takes a lot of boldness to sort of put that out there and and to to make that kind of contract with the country. Do you think does the Republican Party today have that boldness and that foresight? Well, I think Kevin McCarthy does. He had a he had a commitment to America uh, in 2000. And interestingly, um, people thought the Republicans in the House were going to lose 25 seats. They actually gained 15. I mean, that's a swing of 40 seats in expectation. Uh, every seat that they picked up, they won with either a minority member or a woman, in some cases a, a woman who was a minority member, uh, because he had, he'd gone out and he'd recruited – uh, to diversify the Republican Party and to have a broader-based Republican Party. Uh, and I know in, in my talking with Kevin that he absolutely understands this and wants to move in this direction. 
Uh, I, I think the Senate's a harder sell, uh, partly because, you know, in the Senate, you only have a handful of races that are really tough. Uh, most of the senators are not up for re-election. Uh, and of the senators who are up for re-election, most are going to win automatically. So you don't have the same reporting to the country. And this was by design of the Founding Fathers. They, they wanted one institution to be a little bit uh, buffered away from the country. So it's harder to convince senators uh, that they have to actually be positive. Uh, and it's uh, particularly hard if you're dealing with senators who, frankly, just want power to have power. So my frustration with the Republican Party right now is, um, you know, we're we're seeing egregious human rights abuses taking place around the world right now towards the unvaccinated of literally creating internment camps in certain countries. New York City, you can't go into a restaurant if you are unvaccinated. And, you know, we're talking about a vaccine that has an expiration date that you can still get and spread COVID if you get it. That not, We still don't have a ton of safety data for uh, yet this is being implemented around the world. Now, I don't think there are enough Republicans that seem awake to what is happening in that regard personally and just the total loss of freedom. I just got a note last night. Every single Republican in the House has signed on to a resolution uh, condemning and opposing Biden's effort to force private employees, uh, employers to, uh, to vaccinate, you know, to require vaccinations. Uh, and I think in that sense, you've seen more and more Republicans speaking out against the entire, you know, big government uh, police state approach to this stuff. And I think that uh, that'll continue to grow and continue to develop. I think in the Senate, you've had very similar things. They, they had a fight the other day over insisting on uh, having a vote on an amendment about uh, requiring the employers uh, to implement government mandates uh, about uh, vaccinations. And uh, every Republican voted yes. Every Democrat voted no, which was kind of strange. But I think you're going to see you're about to see Manchin and a couple of other senators uh, on the Democratic side break and starts uh, voting with the Republicans on the vaccine issue, at which point they'll start actually passing the Senate. Uh, and I, 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 I think that they should be aggressive. You know, I think part of it is, uh, and, I, and I'm in the middle of uh, I'm reading uh, three different books on the uh, the COVID epidemic, and um, it's hard to overstate how confusing and how badly informed the public health community was, and how often they told people that was simply not true. Uh, and I think that that has only now our, our political leaders beginning to realize how much that they have been misled. Uh, and I think that the overreach by Biden and by Cuomo and by others is beginning to really waken people up to the idea that, you know, you, you can't live your whole life uh, worried about one particular flu, flu-like disease. And it's going to turn out in the long run that coronavirus is going to be uh, like the flu. In fact, we will lo- we'll lose, I think we'll lose more people to flu than we will to, to covid uh, in 2022 or 2023. But see, I, I think it's bigger than that because I, I, I'm not a, a scientist, right? But even back in, you know, what was it, March of 2020, earlier than that, you know, basically right after uh, what well, April was the 15 days to slow the spread, I was reading stuff by Dr. Ioannidis who was outlining basically what you just said, that this is the likely not as bad as what we think. You you could look at surveys even at the beginning or studies showing that the majority of people going into hospitalizations uh, were staying at home. So so we have known quite, you know, almost this entire time that we were being lied to. I, I just feel like sometimes Republicans sort of lay the groundwork for the left as opposed to just being bold and brave when it mattered because now this is we've we've already become consumed by these vaccine mandates, consumed by the messaging. And Republicans were part of that and earlier on and telling everyone to go get vaccinated and simply just leaving it to Americans to make their own decisions or even with police shootings sort of going along and saying we need police reform. Despite if you look at the numbers, it just simply wasn't there that somehow it was open season on, you know, black people in America. That was always a lie. So I I just feel like sometimes Republicans sort of lack the braveness and the ability to fight back when it matters the most. And they sort of lay the groundwork for the left. And and Trump was probably, you know, one of the few recently who was different in that regard of just rejecting false premises from the beginning. Well, look, I think, first of all, Trump has been the most effective anti-left 
politician in my lifetime. I don't think he's a conservative in the William Buckley National Review sense, but I think if, if your interest is breaking up the left, nobody has done a better job than Trump in my lifetime, not, not Reagan, not anybody. Uh, second, um, <clears throat> I think you almost have to be Trump's size, you know, with, with millions of followers, uh, with, with the ability to generate noise the way he does in order to do some of the stuff. If you're a, uh, and, and there's a real balance you've got, you know, that even a guy like Reagan had to follow uh, because you, you can, uh, you, you can, you have to select which fights you're going to pick with the media so that you don't end up looking like you're kooky uh, because the media will hate you. Uh, and it's okay for them to hate you uh, on one or two things. But if they hate you on seven things, they'll begin to, to erode your ability to be seen as effective. So it's, it's always a balancing act. I think that the, the larger picture of the elites, not just in the U.S., but around the world, uh, exploiting COVID as an opportunity to dramatically expand government, I think that's beginning to sink in. And I think there will be a very deep reaction to it. And that in the end, in fact, government will end up being smaller not larger because the average American is going to be so deeply distrustful of the bureaucracies and, and so convinced that it just doesn't work. Uh, I mean, that's the other part. Had, had all this stuff worked, had, you know, had COVID been solved, had the schools actually educated people, uh, had, had we actually had safety in the streets, I think you'd have one attitude. But people are normal, everyday people look around going, wait a second. The murder rate's going up dramatically. The schools aren't working. And we have another wave of, of a COVID variant because the strategy was the wrong strategy. What you've got to focus on, I think, is therapeutics and accepting the idea that uh, when people do get sick, what you want to do is maximize their ability to survive and recover uh, as opposed to trying to contain it through a, through a vaccination-only strategy. And it's very clear in retrospect that the public health people deliberately uh, wanted to minimize therapeutics because they wanted to force people to become vaccinated. Well, it turns out when you're dealing with a rapidly mutating uh, system that last year's vaccine may be of no value, and you're not going to be able to force the whole world into getting vaccinated every single year. People are just plain going to rebel. And in Europe, you see this number. They're very, very big demonstrations in a number of European countries against the government because the government's now been identified as the enforcer of authoritarian rules that affect my body. They don't just affect my pocketbook. Well, and I also think the difference is, you know, if you look at something like the measles or polio, they confer lifetime immunity, whereas this looks like it's an every six month thing. So people are like, you know what? I'm not that high risk or I have natural immunity. I really don't want to inject something in my body that we don't have a ton of data for every six months for, you know, God knows how long. Right. Especially when it's not stopping the spread. But you know, I think one thing I admired about President Trump was just this rejection of false premises, because if you look at before him, it was people like Romney who, you know, when he was questioned about the war on women and all these bogus, uh, you know, fallacies that were being pushed by the left and the media, uh, he would be like, oh, I have binders full of what, right? He would just completely accept the false premise and play into it, whereas Trump would just be like, that's a dumb question, neck, you know? So it, it was just sort of like changed the game in terms of how we deal with the media, of sort of pushing back against, uh, you know, these propaganda wars that they're always waging on us. Well, I think that's right. I'd, I'd say two things about that. One, um, if you're Mitt Romney and you were governor of Massachusetts for four years, and before that, you lived in Massachusetts. You're just you're surrounded by all these people. And this is not a bad negative about Mitt. You're just surrounded by all these people who are cuckoo, uh, and you know being cuckoo in Boston is normal. Uh, so things that when you were talking over coffee, or I guess as a, as a Mormon he wasn't drinking coffee. When you're talking over hot chocolate, uh, you know things that people were saying. You'd hear it so often, you'd think, "Gosh, I guess that's okay." Uh, Trump's great ability is that he knows what he believes. Uh, he's thought about it for a long time. He's actually not automatically a New Yorker or anything else. He's a person who has uh, done business and lived all around the world, uh, and he has formed his own opinions, and he actually knows from his own experience in New York dealing with page six and with the gossip columns, et cetera, that um, 
there's no particular reason to believe uh, that uh, the news media is right and he's wrong. So he's happy. He, he's the most cheerful person about taking on the news media that I've ever seen. And he's so brilliant uh, coming up with things like fake news um, as a term. I mean, it's just uh, – Clist and I went to a remarkable um, museum of, of, of Egyptian artifacts uh, in Turin, Italy. I mean, you would not expect Turin to have – uh, the second largest Egyptian collection outside of Egypt. But in the mid-19th century, a guy from Turin had gathered up all this stuff, tried to sell it to the Louvre. They wouldn't pay him enough. So he gave it to uh, the government in, in Turin, and they opened this amazing museum. And Clist and I were going through it with this tour guide, and we get to one point. He says, you see that statue over there? People will tell you X, but that's fake news. And I thought to myself, I'm standing in Turin, Italy, looking at an Egyptian collection with an Italian guide who's using Donald Trump's language. Uh, and it was just, to me, a stunning example of how much Trump had penetrated the world culture. That's fine. Or even saying, you know, let's go Brandon signs around the world. <laughs> that uh, that also right. seems to inspire, <laughs> in the, but not in a pot. Well, actually, that, that sort of too, to me. No, I, no that's, not, that's not fair. I give Joe Biden <laughs> enormous credit for making Let's Go Brandon a worldwide term. I mean, I mean, and I can't imagine what the term would be for Kamala Harris. <laughs> but doesn't that say something? Like, I, I feel like almost, because you, you look at Let's Go Brandon and you look at literally, I think I was watching like a, my dad was watching on Thanksgiving, which I don't know, I'm not a big soccer fan, so I'm not sure, and he's not either, so I'm not sure why. I think he just wanted to watch sports. But, and they were saying, let's, it's it just, it's everywhere around the country and it's global as well. Do you think we're sort of downplaying the significance of that? Because it, it almost seems like this massive grassroots movement that is intentionally being ignored. Well, it, it, it is. And of course, the somebody wrote a brilliant essay the other day and pointed out, let's go, Brandon, is as much against the news media as it is against Biden. Uh, it, it's a, it, it's, it, was, it was a crowd chanting, and, and it was misinterpreted, as you remember, by this NBC reporter who was trying to pretend that they weren't saying what they were saying. And so she said, oh, they're saying, let's go, Brandon, because Brandon was the, the driver who had just won the race. That caught on instantly, and it was as much mocking the news media for lying about what people were saying as it was mocking Joe Biden. And there's a, there's a great cartoon where where somebody had Jill saying, Please quit saying that. He now thinks his name is Brandon. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. That's funny. Uh, you know, so, sir, you, you've, I mean, you've dealt with the media, right? You, you were in political office at the, you know, some of the highest levels. Uh, you've dealt with this for a long time. You've observed it as a historian as well. Ha has the media always been this corrupt? You know, it's interesting. Uh, John McCain and I shared the distinction of being listed on television as R-media rather than our home state. Uh because uh, we both were on media so much, uh, no, it, it hasn't always been this corrupt. I think I think that it. What happened was, the the le the left believes in a series of lies. I, I always tell people, if you want to understand the left, imagine that they saw the Lion King as a documentary, and they actually believe the lions and zebras sing and dance together. Uh, which both explains how they try to handle Putin and Xi Jinping and also why they're constantly out of touch with reality. Well, it, the challenge on the left is what they believe is a lie, and you have to prop up a lie every single day. Uh, and because it's a lie, you end up having to say things that are simply plain not true. Now, the news media was always, I would say, uh, cynical, uh, and, and it was partly because it's covering human beings and that tends to lead, that can lead one to cynicism. But if you go back and look at, at uh, say, the, the front page, which was both a play and then a terrific movie in the 30s and it's been remade two or three times since then. I mean, there's a lot of cynicism among the reporters. Uh, and and H.L. Uh, Mencken was as trenchant a social observer as ever wrote for a newspaper. And, and he's writing in the 20s and 30s. Uh, and is amazingly insightful and at the same time uh, giving you his opinion and his biases. But I think what happened was the idealism of the early 60s when they were covering the Vietnam War, they were covering the civil rights movement, 
uh, that gradually began to give way to a groupthink, and it's part of what what uh, Theodore White was writing about. That if if you, in order to be acceptable to New York Times today, and I asked this of a great reporter who's now uh, writing books about um, Al- Alex Berenson, who writes writes books now about uh, things like COVID and and the groupthink and the degree to which it's a lie. And uh, I asked Alex, because he he was in the 1990s, a terrific reporter at the New York Times. And he said he could not work at the Times today, that he's not left-wing enough, and he's not willing to walk around and lie about what he believes. And so the Times simply would find him unacceptable. And I think that uh, we see that happening with the Washington Post. You see it happening with NBC and CBS and with the others. Although we're about to see an interesting experiment. CNN is doing so badly uh, in terms of its ratings, uh, that the new team that's taking over from the Discovery Channel has said that they want to return it to being a news channel rather than an opinion channel. And that will be a very interesting experiment if they actually can pull it off. And it will be a wrenching blow to the culture of the CNN system as it currently exists. Quick break. More Speaker Newt Gingrich, author of Beyond Biden. After the break. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The Seven from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The Seven every weekday. So follow The Seven right now. Well, I do believe groupthink is a huge problem right now. That was the whole point of really this podcast and just thinking we have a crisis of a lack of critical thinking in the country right now. You know, sir, do, do you think President Trump runs again? Well, I think he's been very clear to uh, and we've had this conversation but with everybody I know that if his health is good enough, he'll run. But he will not run if his doctor thinks that he is uh, entering has health problems. He, he he's very aware of how fragile and how embarrassing uh, Joe Biden is, and he has and he's not that much younger than Biden, and he has no interest in ending up winning and serving uh, as sort of a guy who's lost it and, and can't do it very well. At the same time, um, I don't think he would run if he was convinced he'd lose. 
you know, you could you can lose once and you can you can say it was stolen and you can blame people. But if you lose twice, it's a repudiation. So I think he has to have two criteria, a belief that he could win uh, and a belief that he will physically be able to serve out four years uh, and do so with with mental acuity. If those two things are there, I think that he will un- he, he will run. And my guess is he'll be the nominee. I, I can't imagine anybody who could take him, partly because, you know, you'd end up in a debate with Donald Trump on the stage and he would annihilate you. I mean, there's, there's nobody who's going to debate Donald Trump uh, and, and, and win the debate. I still remember the line, just Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if not Trump, is it DeSantis? Well, I think if not Trump, it's wide open. Uh, DeSantis is one of the front runners. Uh, Pompeo, Pence, Nikki Haley. Um, the the number of people who would show up and run uh, would be astonishing. Uh, you'd have three or four senators, uh, three or four governors, uh, a couple of cabinet officers. So uh, the the field would be a little bit like 2015 when there were, I think, 16 people running. Uh, and, and DeSantis would certainly have huge advantages. He's been a very effective governor. But, uh, but I would say, you know, a lot of people might decide to show up and play, and uh, you, you, can't, you can't tell until they get out there for a while uh, who's going to have staying power and who's going to actually connect with the American people. I mean, if not Trump, it's DeSantis for me. I just I, I think he is the best politician. I mean, I literally moved to Florida because of him and the fact that I left New York City, communist New York City, to move to freedom here in Florida. Best decision I've ever made. He's a remarkable governor. Uh, you know, so so if not Trump, DeSantis for me, I'll, I'll say it now. I don't care. But, you know. So looking ahead for the Republican Party, looking at the midterms and beyond, what does that look like for Republicans? What does that future look like? One thing that's almost certain and one thing that we don't know. The, the certain, almost certainty is that they're going to win control of the House and probably pick up seats in the Senate. Uh, I think that, uh, and I've written about this uh, at Kingsbury 360 in a series of newsletters, I think you're facing not, not just a wave but a, a tsunami uh, because I think when you go out and you ask people, uh, and we just did a, a video uh, that runs about three minutes, in which we talk about that big government socialism isn't working. I mean, you, you can go stand by any gas station in America, and as people fill up their car, ask them, you know, do you think this is working? And they're going to say no. So I think we're going to win in 22, probably by a huge margin. And the question then is, can we govern? I mean, uh, you, just being the anti-Biden party is not a formula for a long-term majority. And frankly, more importantly, it's not a formula for solving America's problems. And we have really big problems, and we could be in real danger of losing the country, uh, both uh, in competition with China and in just general decay of our civilization. And I think that uh, solving those problems is huge, and the Republican Party has to become the vehicle for solving them. And it's, it's easier right now for me to see how we can win than it is for me to see how we become a dynamic, creative, problem-solving party. Uh, that's a lot bigger change than just winning. Are those problems solvable? Sure. Of course they are. Uh, we're a great country. Uh, look, if, if you could survive in eight years taking on the British Empire when you were a tiny country down at one point to about 2,500 uh, people in, in the army that, that were effective, uh, and, the, and in the end we won, uh, if you're a country that could survive a brutal civil war in which 620,000 Americans were killed, and if you're a country which could simultaneously take on Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and imperial Japan, uh, and then spend uh, almost 50 years defeating the Soviet empire, um, I don't see any, you know, I have, I have a really simple test. There are a lot more people trying to get in than are trying to get out. Uh, so we're still a very desirable country with a great future, and we still attract an enormous amount of talent. Uh, and um, <clears throat> as long as those things are true, unless unless we just work overtime through government to screw it up, uh, we are probably going to be the most powerful and most dynamic country in the world. And, and only the immediate 10 or 20 years, the danger of uh, North Korea, Iran, Russia, China, uh, nuclear war, Islamic terrorism, those are the only things that worry me. If we, if we figure out how to get past them, uh, we will, in fact, by the end of the century— once again, be the center of freedom. And I suspect freedom will be spreading across the planet because on balance, most people actually would rather be free than be slave to some totalitarian dictator. 
See, sir, we needed your wisdom, so I'm glad. I'm so I'm glad to have you uh, to be able to you know look back on history and really examine this for all of us and and give these honest and astute answers. I just want to say, Lisa, I'm very proud of what you've done. I'm very excited by your your abilities and your passion and your commitment to America. Well, that's an honor coming from you, sir. So I have an utmost amount of respect for you. Beyond Biden is out. You know, anything else you want to leave us with before we go, sir? No, I I would say uh, the last uh, of the first stanza of our national anthem. The land of the free and the home of the brave. As long as we're brave, we will be free. I love that. Speaker Newt Gingrich, complete honor. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I want to thank Speaker Newt Gingrich for a great interview, and I want to thank you guys at home for listening. If you enjoyed today's show, please leave us a review. Rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, at Lisa Marie Booth. Thanks to her team, producer John Cassio, executive producers Debbie Myers and speaker Newt Gingrich, all part of the Gingrich 360 network and team. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Plus. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Are you on the hunt for a new home this spring, but don't know where to start? Fisher Homes is your solution. Your new home should reflect you from the front door to the kitchen and even your outdoor space. Start your journey by selecting your ideal home site, like in a cul-de-sac or that's tree-lined, and then choose from a variety of expertly designed floor plans. Bring it all together at our Lifestyle Design Center. Let Fisher Homes be your new home solution this spring and start making memories at fisherhomes.com.